0: Welcome to the Tallyman Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the recent Wagga Wagga state by-election and what it says about New South Wales politics as we are six months out from the New South Wales state election, and we'll also be discussing the federal seat of banks. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Amanda McCormack. Amanda works as a research officer in the New South Wales Parliament and is with us here in a personal capacity. Hi, Amanda.
1: Hi, Ben. And my
0: second guest is Ben Spees-Butcher. Ben is a senior lecturer in Economy and Society at Macquarie University. Hello, Ben. Hi, Ben. We're going to start with a bit of news. In the last couple of days, we've had a couple of big candidate announcements. Yesterday, Karen Phelps, the former president of the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, announced she was running as an independent candidate in the Wentworth by-election that's coming up soon. She's the second independent to announce that she's running for that seat and uh, could be an interesting candidate in that race. And then today, we had the news that Ansuad Marlis, who's the Liberal MP for the very marginal seat of Gilmore, in southern New South Wales, uh, will be stepping down at the election. She was facing a fierce pre-selection challenge, uh, but it also comes at a time where the Liberal Party has been having a lot of trouble with uh, female MPs uh, being losing pre-selection, as we discussed a few months ago, or uh, deciding to retire after the events that led to the downfall of Malcolm Turnbull. Um, what, what is particularly interesting to you, Amanda, about these two announcements?
1: The biggest and interesting aspect of this is uh, in particular looking at Anseed Marlis' statement uh, to do with her resignation is an indication of what's going on down in the Shoalhaven in relation to the Liberal branches and in particular state and federal enmities. The other thing that I do find interesting about Karen Phelps is she's thrown her hat in the ring, hasn't given any thought to... uh, what, her preferen- what kinds of preferences, all she said is, vote the Liberals last.
0: Well, it's interesting that um, in, in federal elections you have to number every box, so voters will have to preference. But I think that's a bit of a pattern we've seen with like people like Tony Windsor, uh, certainly at a state level, Clover Moore, who uh, Karen Phelps used to be an ally of on Sydney City Council, where they, they've generally taken an approach of going, it's just easier if I don't give any preferences and I leave it up to the voter and I stay out of that muck. And as long as they come out at the top of the pile, it works perfectly fine for them, but it, it sort of has a different logic for them because then they're, they're only running in one place and they don't really have any preferences to swap. And it kind of allows them to be seen as independent, even if they're getting greens or labor preferences to help them defeat defeat their main rival.
2: Yeah, and I, look, I think it's a little bit different in Wentworth partly because it's a by-election, so there aren't any other seats up yeah. for grabs. Uh, but also because we've had some polling that suggests there's some outside prospect that Labor could be competitive. So unlike Windsor, where you know, there's really no chance of anyone defeating the Conservatives other than him, mm. um, there is some prospect that if Karen Phelps gets knocked out, it actually matters whether she directs preferences to Labor or Liberal. Um, so I think that it is a more significant uh, announcement because of that.
0: Yeah, and um, we, we will cover Wentworth in more depth, but it, it is interesting that you have... It's a good area for the Greens. Uh, it's an area where Labor clearly... Labor always has a chance, and it's it's not the kind of conservative seat where Labor has no support. And, uh, you know, Leisha Heath, who's the other independent, has been endorsed by Alex Greenwich, who's the state independent MP who whose seat overlaps with the area. So you'd have to assume that she will have um, some real support in terms of the campaign we don't really know how well known she is or how popular she is but certainly there'll be people working on her behalf so it does make a complicated race because you you may well have five candidates not necessarily five who can win but five candidates who are getting significant shares of the vote
1: and then the other issue related to alex is his close relationship with clover as well so in terms of clover somehow appearing in the race or her supporters appearing in the race that's also got the potential there too
0: so we're going to be discussing Wentworth in more depth uh, two episodes from now, just before the by-election. But um, if there's any news, we will, we will keep you updated in the next episode. Uh, we're going to move on now to talking about the results we've had recently. So Wagga Wagga, uh, by-election in a by-election seat that has traditionally been considered very safe for the Liberal Party, um, came along um, the weekend before last. So independent candidate, Joan McGurr, managed 25.4% of the primary vote, just behind Liberal candidate, Julia Hamm, while Labour's Dan Hayes came third with 23.7% of the vote. So roughly a, th- a quarter of the vote went to each of these three main candidates. But after the distribution of preferences, McGurr got elected with almost 60% of the vote. Um, so he will be, by my count, the seventh member of the lower house crossbench in New South Wales, alongside three Greens, two other independents, and a shooter. Uh, and, um, Amanda, what do you see as the main factors in the in the by election result?
1: This was a a, a very strange by election in that I don't think anyone could foresee the the ICAC investigation and subsequently what came out in relation to that. So already there was issues to do with potentially the probity of the former the former member for Wagga Wagga, and then you add in all of the, in, the, the warring that was happening in the Liberals in Canberra and given the media markets to Wagga are so close to those in Canberra that you've got this confluence of events that almost seemed to be a perfect storm where the Liberals' vote collapsed hugely. It, like, it, it was huge.
0: What do you think um, this says about what's been going on with minor party support in New South Wales? We've now had this string of rural by-elections where the Shooters have done really well and the Greens have obviously done really well in New South Wales recently. Like, what does this add to the story, Ben?
2: Yeah, I mean, so one of the, the other <coughs> surprising things about this result, there was a quarter of the vote went to each of the three main candidates, but then a quarter went to the others as well. And a large chunk of that went to the Shooters. Um, and I, I think, so the shooters were preferencing Labor here ahead of uh, the coalition as well. Um, and that fragmentation, particularly of the conservative vote outside of Sydney, mm. I think is potentially very interesting for the state election. We've now got not just the shooters, you've also got One Nation who are registered for the state election, and you've got a whole string of um, independents in regional areas who are clearly able to get a decent size of the vote. Mm. If The coalition's vote does fragment anything like Wagga, clearly it won't be that dramatic, but even a little bit of leakage to all of those uh, candidates Uh, in a system of optional preferential you could see how that could start blowing out a number of regional swings um, around the state.
0: So for people who maybe aren't from New South Wales, so we can explain this, um, because New South Wales is now pretty much the only place in the country apart from the Northern Territory that uses optional preferential voting where voters don't have to number every box they can just vote one if they please and it does mean that it's not it's not the same by any means as first past the post but it can mean in certain situations where parties don't recommend preferences and voters don't particularly feel enthused about marking preferences that it can end up as a bit of a first past the post result where it's very hard for the number 2 candidate the second place candidate to catch up on the first place candidate mm. um, and in that that way it could really uh, amplify these effects
2: Yeah. So I think there are, there's two bits to this, right? So one is to what extent are these votes coming from the conservative side of politics? And certainly in Wagga, I mean, the Labor vote dipped a tiny bit and so did the Greens, but nothing like the Liberal vote. So almost all of this um, vote, this 50% of the vote that went to the Independent plus the others, pretty much all of it um, comes from the conservative side of politics. So that's a much bigger risk for them if a number of those votes don't return. Hmm. But then I think there's a second problem, which is, well, what do the Liberals do to try and get them to return? Do they try and do a deal with One Nation? Hmm. Um, Where do the shooters fit into that? And I think it's actually much harder for the Conservatives to manage those arrangements that require directly communicating to voters, telling them about those arrangements, they don't work otherwise, Um, than it is on the progressive side of politics, where it's now much more accepted that there's some relationship between Labor and the Greens that's nowhere near as problematic for Labor as uh, working with One Nation is for the Coalition. Mm. But if they don't do that, and there's a high exhaustion rate, that's going to hit them one way. If they do do that, then it's going to hit them a different way. And I think that you've seen Queensland, Labor's already trying to do that.
1: The other interesting bit, though, is the number of people that would come through the polling booths who wouldn't accept any how-to-vote material. And so in terms of getting a sense of how you think a vote's going to go, uh, how a booth is going to go and, you know, trying to get a feel or a sense for what's going on, it was, it was very difficult. And I think when you look at the results on the day, especially the number of booths that came out, one, Labour, two, Joe McGurr, three, Julie Ham, it was, it was quite phenomenal.
0: With the Orange by-election, we talked a lot about greyhound racing or council amalgamations things like that. Um, most of most of this electorate wasn't affected by council amalgamations, and both those issues have been kind of um, re- reduced in significance since Orange. But do you see a lot of those similar issues that were having an effect down there?
1: I think, and it comes from different discussions with people, is that there's a very real sense that. A lot of the focus is on Sydney and not on the regions and one of the things that I think the Bush has seen now especially after Orange is that when you look at the pendulum for New South Wales eight out of the 14 seats that Labor needs to win and that the coalition need to need to maintain eight of those are in the regions Mm -hmm. and when you see huge amounts of funding go to you know a, a, a disaster field light rail project, um, pulling down and rebuilding stadiums. It just seems that there's a whole lot of money that Sydney seems to soak up, that once you hit past, you know, west of the Great Divide, that people are there going, well, hang on a moment, We're, we're important too, we make up voters, we're part of New South Wales. New South Wales is more than Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong where are we seeing the same sorts of investment into community infrastructure uh, where are we seeing investments in terms of um, you know roads rail and those sorts of things that people have kind of had a gutful because all they keep hearing about is sydney
0: well one other thing I, I found interesting ben you mentioned one nation and they've um they haven't run in basically any of these by-elections like they, we know that they're interested in by-elections because they ran in the federal by-election in longman and Um, That became a big story for them. Um, But in New South Wales, we've had the shooters who've kind of played that role of being the conservative minor party gathering a lot of that protest vote that may have traditionally gone to the Nationals or the Liberals. And in a way, they're they're quite a different party to One Nation in that, you know, uh, Labor Labor is able to work with them. They they don't have that same kind of taint that One Nation does. Um, And I wonder if that says something about, like... I'm sure the One Nation will make a big effort uh, come the, the state election and maybe they will, they will perform in other places, but the shooters have kind of cornered this market of being the, you know, if you're not happy with the nationals, go to the shooters kind of element, while also being able to sort of, um, you know, swap preferences with Labor and have got themselves into quite a, a nifty position in terms of the political market now. Um, what, do you, what do you think about where all that fits in?
2: yeah no absolutely so um the, the structure also of the, the the kind of regulation around shooting that that came in with gun law reform after how it has kind of created a natural uh donor slash resource space for the shooters as well through um the way that that rifles are registered and, and stuff and shoot voluntary shooting clubs and stuff and they've worked that really really well um there's going to be a competition for that right vote. Most of that is going to be for those parties is about the upper house, yeah. right? That's what they're targeting. I think one of the questions there is, does that fragmentation with the same kind of op- op- optional preferential system and this kind of diminishing quota, which we might need to explain in a minute, um, that might mean that they, we increase the number of right-wing parties because a number of them all end in around 2 or 3% and they all get a seat for that. Um, or it might mean that uh, the shooters who usually don't get much above a quota uh, are competed down by One Nation. You get them both ending on about one and a half percent and they both lose out from that race. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see whether they coordinate
0: mm.
2: um, uh, and whether they're going to you know, have potentially then go to Labor and Liberal to try and bargain over preferences collectively or whether they have you know a kind of cutthroat competition between both of them Mm. Um, and then whether they do compete up the number of votes whether there are distinct markets that means that one nation plus shooters depress the conservative vote more than the shooters by themselves and I tend to think they do and that that is a real risk I completely agree with Amanda that there's something different going on in the regions than into Sydney Uh, I think that partly reflects the the, um, asset investment that the Liberals have done in Sydney, I think it also reflects a longer term trend in the kind of political economy of New South Wales where the regions are increasingly actually about public services. They're the biggest employers um, and that's made a big shift uh, from the kind of manufacturing centres and mining centres to areas along the coast um, but also to some extent inland where they're not really farming communities anymore. Mm -hmm. They're largely... Uh, communities made up of teachers and nurses. And um, Labor's coming from a low base in many of them because it didn't really try to organise them. And now when it is, with the, that, that kind of change in the economy, com- combined with the issue agenda, it means you know, health and education are, are Labor's bread and butter. The, the idea of asset recycling, of privatising things and reinvesting really doesn't go down well in those kinds of communities. Um, I do think there's a shift structurally that's opening up regional seats to the left at the same time we might talk about banks that affluence in Sydney is potentially doing the opposite.
1: In particular Mm. when you look at things like the level of public sector employment that happens in regional New South Wales it sits above 17-18% and in say a place like Barwon which effectively makes up one third of New South Wales I think the last piece of data I saw that said there were about 20 or 21% of its work, of voters came from the public service. So when you see privatisation, um, asset recycling and those particular sorts of things coming, you know, becoming or squeezing the amount of recurrent investment, uh, recurrent funding that it is that schools, hospitals, TAFE and those particular sorts of services receive. Um, it- Um, it is public sector employment that that does begin to diminish
0: well that that raises a question for me which is where where do the shooters stand on those kind of issues because like on the one hand yeah they they probably will get um crunched a bit by one nation but they've also had a tremendous run of success in the lower house that suggests that maybe they've had some not that they, they didn't used to run in those seats but uh it does still suggest a level of organization and capacity building um And they have clearly, their their targets are very much being the regional party. And um, like, where do they stand on those kind of issues? Um, Because they they are a little bit different to some of the other um, right-wing miners in that regard. Like, do do either of you know the answer to that?
1: Um, Look, one of the things that I have seen them do quite effectively was they spearheaded the issue around whether or not registered nurses should be in aged care facilities 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. And they were, they basically led the charge on that issue. Um, And in terms of the response, I, I, they are in a sense, a a qatar style party in that there is, they do have links to civil society and other organizations that is so, that is quite different from Pauline Hanson and One Nation and those other, because these are people who, at least key supporters, seem to be people who are disaffected by the major parties. And in that sense, they do come with it some core values and some of the things that I have seen, especially with um, shooters, fishers and farmers, is this idea of you know public service, uh, the importance of public service, the importance of community. But on key social issues, they seem to take positions that might not necessarily cohere very well with other minor right-wing parties.
2: Yeah, well, I think they they have some similar base to the Nationals to some extent, but they're not hinged to the Liberal Party in the same way. And like the National Party is much more reticent about privatisation than the Liberals are. Mm. Uh, But obviously the coalition agreement makes it very, very difficult to move very much on that. Um, So I I think partly what you're seeing with the shooters is that it is easier for them to take Um, a more oppositional stance to privatisation and to take a kind of pro-public investment stance, which is just overwhelmingly popular in most of those communities um, and respond more to the kind of electoral pressure and opportunity that that presents because they're a bit, we might say, ideologically flexible in a way that the national party aren't. I don't think they're they're solid allies of the public sector, uh, but they're not um, solid opponents in the way the Liberal Party are.
0: And I think, I mean, There is certainly an element with the Shooters, and this is an oversimplification, that they do have a bit of the appealing to the old-style country party, the kind of independent country party. Um, I mean, it's been a very long time since they've been really independent, but the at least more independent country party um, of old that I think there's probably a lot of nostalgia for in the country that um, was was more independent of the Liberals traditionally.
1: And then to think that the (laughs) current member for Orange also came from the public sector.
0: So there, there are those sorts of links there as well. So why don't, we, um, why don't we zoom out slightly to the rest of the state. So we're basically six months out from the state election. Um, we, this was probably the last electoral test we've seen before the election. Um, at the moment, the coalition holds 52 seats, 47 is a majority. So if they lose six, they'd be reduced to, to a minority government. And if Labour were to gain 13 seats, they would have a majority. Um, Anything in between, we'd have a hung parliament of some kind with a mixture of Greens, Shooters, Independents in the hot seat. And the polling recently, we haven't had a lot, but it's generally shown that it's relatively close. Uh, You know, we're not seeing a situation where the... um, where the Liberals are way out in front, we're also not seeing a situation where Labor is romping at home. And Ben, ben what do you, what's your take at the moment about where you see things are going?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult with midterm polling of state elections. There's mm. a lot of voters that really don't tune into this at all until the last couple of weeks of a campaign, let alone when no one's yeah. really talking about it. Um, but I, I do think there's uh, there is two slightly different conversations happening in, in the city versus the country. So I think that's one thing to keep your eye on. I think Amanda's right. more than half of these marginal seats are outside Sydney. And I think that's a real risk for the coalition. Um, Up until Wagga and up until what happened in Canberra, I I got the sense from people who were close to this that people thought, yeah, the the coalition's going to lose seats, but they're probably just going to scrape over the line. They're probably not going to lose enough to be forced into minority government. But they really have lost two relatively safe seats that shouldn't have been in play at all. Um, If those candidates can maintain those seats, that's also an if. Uh, I think that that makes a a loss of a coalition majority actually very likely now, even in uh, an election where the swing's not that big. Mm. Um, On the other hand, I think that the the kind of swing that you are looking at when you get all of those 14 seats swinging to Labor is a little bit hard to believe. Um, And it's particularly hard to believe when there's not any real raw anger at the coalition and there is still quite a lot of residual um, disgruntlement at Labor. Uh, so I, I really do think we're, we're now at the situation, probably minority government is the most likely outcome. Mm. Um, but there are a lot of different kind of minority governments in there because it's such a, a big crossbench. Uh, it, it's going to be really interesting to see you know, what, what that all means and how both party major parties as well as all of the others position themselves in terms of talking about what minor, minority government means, who you can work with, who you can't work with, who they're going to run scare campaigns against, Um, I I think this could be a a different kind of election for that reason. Uh, And all of it, what, six weeks before a federal election where actually half the state might be confused about who they're voting for. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be very complicated. And,
1: And just following, you know, and that makes candidate selection, especially in seats that have not yet being pre-selected for even more important, you know, and there's also, I guess, given the intense pressure, is that there's quite possibly going to be some weird and wonderful things happen with different candidates regardless of their political stripes.
0: We won't spend a lot of time on New South Wales, but, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting just to sort of run through what the six seats are that are very marginal right now because they are an interesting mix where you have Monero and Upper Hunter both, like, national seats, but um, there's, there's a strong Labour element in those seats. You've got Lismore and Tweed, they're both in the north of the state. Again, both national seats, but Tweed is, is basically an urban seat now and Labour is very close to winning there. And Lismore, uh, the Greens came close to winning Lismore last time, not that the Labour Party's out of it, but both Labour and the Greens will be looking at winning Lismore. And then you have two that are in the city east hills and Coogee. those seats are all like under 3.2 percent in terms of margin so you could easily see a situation where the pendulum just swings a little bit and the and the government falls just sort of the majority but in that sort of situation maybe they can scrape together the shooters on McGur or possibly regain those seats and form a government that way uh, but it would look very different if you end up in a situation where you know Uh, Labor wins those five seats, the Greens win Liz Moore, you could end up in a situation where there's four Greens supporting a Labor Party in government and we've never seen anything like that in terms of a single member electorate, big state. And um, it'd be very interesting to see how that would work. So it's gonna be interesting. We're we're gonna return to New South Wales as well as Victoria, which we'll be talking about in some upcoming episodes. So finally, we're gonna discuss the federal seat of Banks in Southern Sydney. Um, Banks covers the suburbs on the north side of the Georges River, including Reevesby, Padstow, East Hills, Peakhurst, Mortdale, Oatley, and Narwee. The Liberal Party's David Coleman holds a seat by a 1.4% margin, and he won the seat in 2013. Uh, he was recently promoted to serve as Minister for Immigration and Citizenship as a junior ministry in the Morrison government, uh, which is interesting in the context of that electorate. Ben, what, what do you think is particularly interesting about the seat of Banks?
2: Look, it is one of these seats in uh, metropolitan Sydney where people have been getting more affluent over the last 15, 20 years. Um, and so parts of it really don't look like a traditional Labor seat at all. And parts of it do look like a traditional Labor seat. Um, and, you know, a little bit like uh, some of the the other seats closer to Sydney where you've had uh, solid blocks of people who vote left and right next to each other and not. They look marginal, but there actually there's not much give in either of them. Um, I think it, it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether this there is potential for a big swing here. I, I suspect that there's less potential for a big swing here than there is in some of the other outer uh, metropolitan seats. Um, but I think there's also been a, a significant shift in that uh, wage stagnation over the last five or six years. Um, I think potentially shifts. The dynamics around those more affluent workers who are less likely to be unionised now than uh, would have been the case fifteen or twenty years ago, and when your wages are going up and you you know you're not really socialised into collectivism in the same way, very easy to see how those guys have drifted across to the coalition. I, I think the the wages issue might be a real you know the penalty rate stuff. It might be a real uh, one for labour to to shift them over the line.
0: Yeah, I mean it's one of the most interesting electoral maps i've seen is um is the electoral map of banks because and we'll we'll link to it on the on the page but it's sort of a an east west seat and you have you the southern end of the seat is all the the riverside suburbs and they've become very blue but then the northern strip of the seat still is labor voting even though it's currently held by liberals so and then you go just beyond the border to the north and you get into you get into suburbs like Lecember and Bankstown and places like that. So you have this kind of riverfront effect where those areas are solely liberal now, but they're paired with nearby western suburbs, areas that are much much less affluent and it makes it a very interesting seat seat to watch. And you have a kind of a little bit of the same in reading
1: Well this is where following on from what Ben was saying is that when you're looking at the median weekly incomes and you're comparing them to Uh, the median incomes of New South Wales and Australia is. It it very much is similar, so the median income in banks is reflected in the median income in New South Wales and Australia, they're all on par. However, when you go then to the issue of housing and you look at the median rents of banks, or or the median mortgage repayments in banks compared to New South Wales and Australia, you actually find that it's um, quite a bit higher. And so in that sense, with wage stagnation and those sorts of things, that's going to come into play. The other thing that I also find fascinating about this seat is that when you're looking at, so you add in that, then you also add in, um, in particular, the issue of languages spoken in the home and community languages. So this is a seat which has nearly 50% of households where they have uh, languages other than English spoken in the home. So you've got this fantastic mix of issues to do with class, issues to do with um, identity and and mother country and mother tongue. It's a very
0: multicultural electorate.
1: Yeah. And, you know, and one of the other interesting bits to point out is something like nearly a quarter of the people in the 2016 census in banks identified as not having a religion. Mm.
2: And I I wonder whether, you know, possibly say the obvious, but this move is... To, um, to make the member the, the Minister for Immigration. Um, that's partly a bit of a payback after the leadership ructions, but that particular position does give a very tangible, direct connection to, to some of those communities. I mean, immigration's a pretty hands-on practical kind of thing for um, migrant communities.
0: It's also interesting in terms of what image the government wants to send that um, the, you know, Uh, Peter Dutton is still Minister for Home Affairs and he's kind of the senior minister in this portfolio and immigration is now sort of a junior portfolio in it, which I think is interesting in itself. But the the kind of hardcore, um, maybe a bit of a nastier edge that they've portrayed, they've now kind of separated that from the person who's responsible for, I presume responsible for granting visas and citizenships and things like that. The kind of more positive side of things. Um, On the one hand, you, if, if the job of immigration minister was the same as what it was before, you could imagine that being a bit of a poison chalice for David Coleman, but you'd have to assume it won't be. That Dutton continues to, to play the, the bad cop kind of role and, and um, they kind of separate out and go, no, 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 like, you know, legal migrants, um, those kind of things, like that's, that's over. And reunions. Yeah, yeah, and that, that kind of sets a different tone in terms of that stuff. Uh, and that that will make it interesting, but it does mean that like this seat could be an interesting place to look if if immigration is an issue in the election because it's such a multicultural seat, and now the, the MP is the minister. So,
2: and I, I think with that we don't necessarily think about it in ra- in quite the racialised terms that we do immigration, but the debate that's emerging around population size has enormous implications for that. And if certainly a Liberal government, I don't believe they really are going to try and uh, dramatically reduce immigration. There are other strong pressures from business that will probably prevent that. But to the extent they do, that just practically makes getting a visa hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think potentially does bite in a seat like banks.
0: So that's about it for this episode of the Room podcast. Thank you to both Amanda and Ben for joining me. Uh, one of the things that uh, I saw today as well was, um, there's a book that's just come out by Sean Crowe, Whitlam's Children, which is about the relationship of Labor and the Greens, and it's just come out today, and I think we'll probably talk a bit more about that in the future, but I believe there's, a, there's an event coming up Next month um, in November,
2: there is. So, Thursday, the 1st of November, uh, the Fabians in New South Wales are putting on an event that will involve Sean. I'll be there as well. Uh, so, there'll be a discussion, Labour and Greens people involved in a discussion about Labour and the Greens, hopefully in a, a constructive and interesting way. Cool. Uh,
0: so, you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Twitter. At the Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode and once again, thanks for listening.